My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Technology and education have completely changed my life and my life chances. I really wanted everyone to kind of feel comfortable with technology because there's a whole world out there and so much information and opportunity. Well, we've all been pushed around. Hello and welcome to It's Complicated with me, Tanya Goodin, the podcast to help you untangle your relationship with your phone. Because we've all been pushed around. This is a podcast about learning to live healthily and happily with technology and the digital world and understanding why sometimes it's so hard to do. Because if we learn how to step away from our phones more, we'll be learning how to step in more to our lives, improving our relationships, our work and our health. Because we've all been swept away, yeah. I'm your host, Tanya Goodin, author and founder of digital wellbeing movement Time to Log Off. Each week I'll be asking a new guest what they've learned about the relationship with the tiny tyrant in their pocket, their smartphone. So as a bit of a change to all the podcast episodes where we've been pointing out some of the pitfalls and problems with the tech world, my guest this week left me feeling really uplifted and positive and remembering why I chose a career in tech in the first place. Professor Sue Black, OBE, is a British computer scientist, an academic and a social entrepreneur. She's currently Professor of Computer Science at Durham University. She was instrumental in saving Bletchley Park, the site of the World War II codebreakers. And she's also the founder of social enterprise Tech Mums. So we talked about all of that and we talked about Sue's incredible career from leaving school at 16 as a single mum with three children to ending up in this incredible place now and what technology has really done for her. 
I thought we were going to be quite different when I looked at her biography and how she describes herself because she describes herself as a technology evangelist and one of the things I describe myself as is a digital detox evangelist but actually we found out we had a huge amount in common we don't mention it in the podcast but when we were setting up the podcast we found out we were born actually in the very same small town on the south coast of England in fact in the same building and then ended up having these careers in tech that brought us to the place we are now and we actually of course talked about our very similar experiences of being the only women in the room when we both initially moved into tech as a career choice and what that felt like. And of course, one of the things, one of the big drivers in Sue's career has been to connect women through technology and to explain what an incredible agent for change tech can be for women. And I completely agree with her on that, as my career has shown. So I think she's an incredibly uplifting and inspiring and motivating person to listen to. So I really hope you're going to enjoy this week's episode. I absolutely loved it. So Sue, hi, welcome to It's Complicated. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. So It's Complicated, you know, the premise of the podcast is it's about our complicated, our sometimes complicated relationship with tech. And actually, I've been thinking about the fact that the relationship between women and tech has been particularly complicated so women have been underrepresented in the technology industry but their contributions I think have often been hidden as well so I was actually talking to someone the other day about Ada Lovelace saying gosh I, I never heard about Ada Lovelace when I was at school and I actually looked up when we first started celebrating Ada Lovelace Day. She was one of the very first computer programmers for anyone listening who doesn't know who she is. And it was she only actually came up with the idea of software. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Yes. It was actually yeah, software was do. her yeah. idea. Yeah, software yes. was her idea. Yeah. So the whole time I was at school, never heard about her. And obviously now we celebrate her every year. When the whole Hidden Figures film came out, you know, that explained the contribution that women african-american mathematicians made at nasa to getting men on the moon i knew nothing about that and actually i'm going to talk to you about it later on in the podcast but the very big contribution that women made to bletchley park which was also i think kind of hidden by history yeah so i read something about you that said an article about you began when future historians write about women's contributions to technology sue black is sure to get top billing oh wow um and (laughs) And you tweeted, I I wanted to read this out because you tweeted in 2018. I left school at 16, was in a women's refuge at 25 with three small children, went back to education at 26, got a degree in computing in 1993, a PhD in software engineering in 2001. And this week, this was back in 2018, got a DSC Doctor of Science Award from University of Kent in Canterbury Cathedral. So technology has obviously been very good to you <laughs> yes. in your life. It's also been very good to me, but it isn't for a lot of people. So I suppose I wanted to start for a lot of women. I wanted to start by saying, why do you think women are still underrepresented in technology and computer science? What is it that's holding back 
women from getting involved in tech as a career? Well, that that's a really good question. And there's not like one easy answer, really. I think I think there are lots of reasons for that. And I guess really the biggest thing would be our culture in that women, women, not just women in technology, but women in science, you know, we've been trying to get, so women like earlier on in the century, women trying to get into science, but not even being allowed to, to enter university to study science Mm. um, all the way through to today, really our whole culture, you know, it's like if you, if you ask, um, there's been various experiments. If you ask kids to draw a picture of a scientist, they nearly always draw a guy and just the whole kind of dialogue around, science you know it's it's just been male dominated and you know that that's even an even bigger picture is that our society is basically misogynist yeah. and and that's bad for for men as well as women because it doesn't give everyone the opportunity to achieve their potential i guess and you know as a woman working in tech 20 when I I didn't really realize I was a woman in tech until probably <laughs> until I started my PhD because I went to college that was mainly guys I went to uni as an undergraduate that was mainly guys and I don't think I ever really thought about that at all that was just like normal for me to be in the 10% the 15% women mm-hmm. and I don't think I really noticed that I was a woman in tech if you want to call it that and it wasn't really till I was doing my PhD and went to my my PhD supervisor really encouraged me to go to conferences and network with people because he said it's not just what you know it's who you know which I think is true and so trying to network at conferences which were like 10% women 15% women uh, the first time that that I actually tried to do that and you know I'm a very confident person now but back then 20 something years ago I really wasn't so I was totally outside my comfort zone and, you know, trying to work out who's the one person I'm going to talk to at this conference, because for me, just one person was a challenge. And a guy gave, you know, a great talk. He seemed very down to earth. So I thought, well, I'll chat to him in the break. So I chatted to him in the break. We had a great, great chat about research, about my research, his research. But then for the rest of the conference, every time I turned around, he was staring at me. I got really freaked out. And, you know, like I, I can have some sort of idea now why that might have been. But back then I thought I'd done something terribly wrong and offended him, mm-hmm. which to me seems a bit ludicrous that I thought that now, but that honestly is what I thought. And then, you know, other conferences after that, I really kind of, I didn't have much confidence. I totally lost my confidence in terms of networking because I had so many, just so many times I tried to chat to people. And and again, I didn't really think about chatting to men or chatting to women. I was just chatting to people. And because it was mainly men, I just didn't really think about that. I just had some other not so great experiences. And then it wasn't until, so that's probably like from 94 onwards. In about 98, I went to a women in science conference in Brussels. And I can remember walking into the the conference location thinking, oh no, you know, another conference, I'm not very good at networking. And going in and getting my badge, going getting a cup of tea or something. And you know, like I kind of, within a minute, I was having a great time. Women, everyone, mm. was, everyone was how it seemed. And the, and the two day conference completely kind of changed my life really, because it helped me to realize that, oh, I was a woman in tech. I didn't even realize that before a woman in computing. And that sometimes it's nice to be in, in the majority, you know, so yeah. I think life is easier if you're in the majority you know it just means that everything is in quotes normal I suppose or normalized and so you just feel more comfortable and you feel included and so I kind of came back from that conference realizing I was a woman in tech and wanting to help other women 
you know, like chat to other women in tech and, and to have that kind of being in the majority kind of feeling, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, that's so women weren't haven't been represented in science. So there's been some amazing scientists who've managed to to do the stuff that they've done, you know, like Ada Lovelace, like mm. Marie Curie, women in tech, like Steve Shirley. But they're the ones that have kind of managed to make it through for whatever reason. But in general, women have just been, you know, as part of our kind of whole history and culture, been kind of kept out of science. And I think, you know, it's not actually particularly about technology. It's it's about the sort of bigger picture. And, you know, I can see it changing definitely after 20 years in tech now, but not fast enough at all. I mean, it's wonderful to see that there's loads of women in tech awards and, and all sorts of things, all sorts of groups to do with women in tech now. When I came back from that conference, I set up um, BCS Women, the British Computer Society Women's Network, and that was the first online network for women in tech in the UK. You know, and now there are loads, loads and loads and loads. So that's wonderful. I think the atmosphere is, is definitely changing, but there's still a long way to go. So I wished I'd found out about your BCS women's group because I I actually set my digital business up in 1995 and I've never admitted this to anybody but it was actually reading about your experience of networking that made me think actually I stopped going to conferences. I tried a couple of conferences and meetings and I felt yeah. so uncomfortable because I was the only woman but yeah. I didn't go. I used to, I oh, had wow. guys working for me and I used to send them in my place yeah and I remember after about 10 years in the business people saying that you know they didn't know that the business was run by a woman and that they'd never met me because I just felt so kind of and I just thought it wasn't important I thought it wasn't important to network and go to this conference <laughs> which yeah I mean is one of the you know getting back to our point about you know kind of why women are underrepresented you really do need to connect and you do yeah, need absolutely. to network with people but then also if, if it's not a pleasant experience you know you're not going to go are you or you know no. like like I was saying only you know only a few um only a few make it through um yeah. you know and uh it should be comfortable for everybody to go and to go and network you know it's crazy that it's not and well hopefully things are changing so you're um, professor of computer science at Durham now. Yeah, yeah. How? What's the representation like in your student body? I mean, are are you getting more female students studying computer science? Is it still an imbalance? Well, you know, it's what about, does it look like? Yeah. It's about fifteen percent, and one Gosh, of the really. I yeah, thought you were going main... to say forty or something. No, <laughs> that's what that's what we're aiming for. We're oh. aiming for fifty fifty. But the thing is, you know, there's, there's, we've got various initiatives. There's about six different things so far that we've started doing at Durham to try and make sure that our, our computer science degree is inclusive for all. But, you know, it takes time. It takes time. And also there's society and what's in the media. And, you know, so it's, it's just not a straightforward problem because there's so many kind of, bits and pieces to it you know it's it's not just oh you just do this and it'll all get sorted out I yeah. wish it was like that but it's really not get and it's, more girls it's not... to do stem a levels that's always the classic thing isn't it yeah but, but the not thing just is then about that no yeah. we, we need to do like 20 different things and not all at Durham so 
Yeah. You know, part of it needs to be society changing. You know, and I mean, I think it is because we do have, for example, like you mentioned, films like Hidden Figures, and we do know about Ada Lovelace now. And also, quite often, the reason that we do know about those women, that we do know about these initiatives, is because someone took up the challenge to actually make sure that everyone knows about it. You know, so I don't know if you know Sue Charman Anderson, but she's the one that set up Ada Lovelace Day. And, uh, and, you know, managed to get a small amount of funding to run Ada Lovelace Day every year, but still struggles for funding to get it funded, you know, to make stuff happen. And it's because she took that upon herself that we all know about Ada Lovelace now, where, you know, whereas before we didn't. So I knew about Ada Lovelace because, you know, well, in fact, I was trying to champion her before Sue came along, um, along with lots of other things and lots of other people. But it, quite a lot of the time it takes one person to kind of get in there and really just bang on about it for ages, usually years, until people start it's listening. And then finally, then everyone, yeah. you know, then but then quite often no one knows who that person was. They just know about it now, you know, like hidden figures. So, you know, yeah. someone wrote the book, but then they probably had to push that hard to try and get that published. And, you know, we, we live in very interesting times where... I guess because of the internet and because of social media in particular, it's brought people together in ways that we just weren't able to communicate before. You know, and I kind of really saw that with the the campaign to save Bletchley Park in terms of, you know, I, I tried to raise awareness of Bletchley Park using traditional media. So like, you know, BBC News, Radio 4, The Times newspaper um, and getting out to, to quite a lot of people. But nothing actually really changed until I started using Twitter. And, you know, just because you, I could type Bletchley Park into the search box in Twitter and then start chatting to everybody in the world that mentioned Bletchley Park and kind of carried on in that vein for three years running the campaign to raise awareness. Because I was able to reach those people, we managed to save Bletchley Park. But if, I, if we hadn't had social media, if we hadn't had Twitter, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to do that. And I really see how the internet connecting people and now social media enables people to find other people that care about the same things that they do in a way that you couldn't do through the kind of traditional hierarchies that were in place before that so it's just totally disrupted the way that we communicate with each other and and kind of allowed us to to connect to people we never could have found before so I would definitely have found out about your BCS women's group if if social media had been around then I was was exactly thinking that point that I would have been looking on Twitter and I would have found it so I agree. I think social media as a force for raising awareness and connecting people is really powerful. Tell everyone yeah. why Bletchley Park is so important, <laughs> yeah. in, in a nutshell, and and also the story of women. Because it's a really interesting... I've visited... I can't tell you how many times I've visited because I'm obsessed with the Great. story. But awesome. it's, a, it's a brilliant story about how technology and computer science helped us win the war and also how women had a really important part in that isn't it absolutely yeah so I mean I I didn't again that's another I didn't know about Bletchley Park you know I did a computer science degree but during the whole degree didn't hear about Bletchley Park Mm. um, and was always interested in what happened in World War Two in in terms of spies and uh, espionage and that kind of stuff so I was kind of interested in that growing up so I think I would have known about it. But so I first went there in 2003. And at that time, I was going up there to a, representing BCS women, actually, at a, a BCS meeting. And so I went to the meeting, then went for a walk around the site, because it's a, a 26 acre site. So I went for a walk around afterwards, walked into this building where there was just this kind of amazing feat of engineering being built by these guys. And so I went over to them to have a chat to them about what it actually was. 
And they told me they were rebuilding Turing's bomb machine. So that's a machine that was used to industrialize the code breaking process back mm. in uh, World War Two. And they said that the machines at the end of World War Two, all the machines that had been used to do that had been cut up on Churchill's orders into pieces smaller than a human fist and buried so so that no one could ever know no could really what them. happens yeah. yeah absolutely or like recreate them but they decided that they really wanted everyone to know about the mm. massive contribution which was amazing so we chatted about that and then they said why are you here so I said oh I'm here representing this network BCS women like women in computing and John, the guy that I was chatting to, said, oh, did you know that um, more, the ha- more than half the people that worked at Bletchley Park were women? So I was like, no, I didn't know that. Um, how many people worked here? And he said more than 10,000. And so I'd kind of gone up to Bletchley Park. Just I think all I knew was that the code breakers were there. That's about it, really, during the Second World War, nothing else. And that and I, for some reason in my head, I sort of thought it was kind of like 50 old blokes wearing tweed jackets and smoking pipes <laughs> and like doing the doing the Times crossword with a bit of code breaking on <laughs> the side. With their feet on the desk, yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so that was the image that I had of Bletchley Park. And that was about the, the only thing that I knew. And in fact, I didn't know because it wasn't actually true. But um, yeah, so, so John said that more than 10,000 people worked there, more than half of them were women. And then I found out subsequently that that, that was about 8,000 women that worked at Bletchley Park and the outstations. So I I went away from that visit just totally intrigued and wanted to raise the profile of the women that worked at Bletchley Park because I couldn't find anything online at all. And there was a very small um, sort of exhibit within the um, within the museum at Bletchley Park about the women that worked there, but almost nothing. And so I just thought I've got to do something to raise their profile. So I went away, got some funding to run an oral history project and ran that, interviewed about 15 women for the project. And then at the launch of that project in 2008, the director of Bletchley Park gave a a talk at the launch and he said that he was really worried that Bletchley Park might have to close because they were teetering on a financial knife edge. And he said, and if we close, we'll never be able to open again. So that'll just be kind of like the end of Bletchley Park. Mm. And, you know, who knows what will happen after that. And so I thought, well, that's terrible. That can't happen. You know, like all those people worked there during the war. And then I was invited up to a reception at Bletchley Park and did a full tour of the site with one of the guys that worked there. And he was telling us about all these amazing code breaking achievements that happened all around the site. And then towards the end, we were just kind of stood looking at Hut 6 which was a a hut with a blue tarpaulin over the end. And he was saying, you know, and the work that was done here was said to have shortened World War II by two years. And at that point, 11 million people a year were dying. And I just thought, so this place saved 22 million lives. And yet it might have to close because they don't have any money. Um, So it kind of went from championing the women that worked at Bletchley Park to trying to raise awareness about the contribution of Bletchley Park and all the women, all, all the people that work there. And, you know, just to really focus on keeping it open. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So at that point, I was head of a computer science department at the University of Westminster. So that meant I was on a, a list of um, an email list of professors of computing in the country. And I had some professors, so I emailed all of the heads and professors in the UK of computing, said we've got to save Bletchley Park, got support straight away by email, and then thought I need to raise awareness, what am I going to do? So I contacted several journalists and um, Rory Heffern-Jones from the BBC got in touch quite quickly. And basically Rory got me onto BBC News on the Today programme and we sent a letter into the Times saying, you know, we need to save Bletchley Park. So that was in 2008. And so got lots of publicity from that. But then a few months later, nothing much had happened. Like Bletchley Park hadn't been saved. I was still talking about it to people that I met in person, but not. I didn't really know what else to do. You know, like I'm academic computer scientist, not a, a marketeer or, you know, not a PR person. So I really didn't know what else to do. And it wasn't until the end of 2008 that I started using Twitter and realized quite quickly that, you know, if you just type Bletchley Park into the search box, you can find everyone on Twitter that's talking about Bletchley Park and you can have a conversation with them. So I kind of started talking about Bletchley Park. I'd set up a blog, just kind of like talking about the situation Bletchley was in and and what we were doing as part of the campaign. And various people got in touch who then came up to Bletchley Park with me, who were really great at social media and kind of really taught me how to use social media I'd been contacted by a couple of the the veterans from Bletchley Park who were supportive of the campaign. So I was kind of like working with them to work out what to do using Twitter. Got Stephen Fry involved quite early on, like a couple of months on using Twitter. I I was really, I really (laughs) laughed when I read the bit in your book because I remember, so, so I I guess practically no one who's going to listen to this podcast will remember, but I remember the famous Stephen Fry stuck in a lift tweet. Yeah. Okay. Which was 2009. Yeah. So we were all on Twitter then. I I have to say, I just want to say that Twitter was a lovely place in 2009. Yeah. It was such fun. But anyway, he was famously stuck in a lift and he tweeted, didn't he? I'm stuck in a lift. Yes, he did. Yeah. Tweet to me. And I read, when I read your book, I thought, gosh, that was the moment. It was that tweet that yeah. you replied to. Yeah, absolutely. To... Well, that's amazing yeah. that you remembered it too. That's so cool. Because, yeah, it was kind of like a, a moment on Twitter, right? It was a Twitter moment, yeah. 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 For everyone in the UK, at least, who was on Twitter then, because he had the most followers, which I think was something like 20 or 30,000. I can't remember how many. Um, yeah. I think, but he had the, you the most followers in the UK, yeah. 
That's right. And every, and that's yeah, he followed everyone who was on Twitter at the time. Yeah. Um, I think. And we all followed him, didn't we? Yeah, so he exactly. Was kind of, yeah, a bit like our, um, our but kind you, of hero. So you, yeah. you DM'd him yeah. and you told him about uh, Betsy Park, didn't you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and about the campaign. And I said, if you get involved, I'm sure it'll make a massive difference. So I know I sent him three DMs. And, you know, like in the evening, went to bed, got up the next morning. I'm sitting at my computer the next morning and I get a message for like a direct message from Stephen Fry. So I nearly fell off my chair because, you know, I was always trying to contact lots of people and he was probably the most famous. Well, he was the most famous. So the fact that he replied, I was just like completely blown away. And yeah, he um, he sent me a direct message saying I have tweeted, hope it helps or something like that. And so then, yeah, he tweeted a link to my blog. And at that time, I was getting 50 hits a day on my blog, which in 2009, I thought was great. <laughs> and then uh, well, one tweet from Stephen Fry, and I got 8,000 hits wow. that day. And I became the most retweeted person in the world on Twitter that day um, <laughs> because of the Stephen Fry effect, basically. Yeah. yeah, it was just so amazing. And that was kind of a lesson for me in what to do. You know, like if you find, if you've got, if you're running a campaign, Find key influential people that care about the same things that you do and get them on board with your campaign, you know, and kind of invite them in. And uh, because, of course, they've got a much larger network. We had a much larger network than I did. I probably had like 100 followers then. I can't remember. And so, yeah, that was a real lesson for me in how to run a campaign. I was kind of following my nose trying to work out what to do. But I think that definitely was, was a step change. And then it was Twitter really where... I was able to just connect with so many people and encourage, basically encourage people to make a song and dance about Bletchley Park and how we needed to save it and kind of tell the story, get more people involved and just kind of like went round and, and round sort of in, in, um, in a sort of iterative way, finding people, encouraging them, encouraging them to find people that they knew and did that for three years, got Google involved after a couple of years who they um, helped Bletchley Park buy the Turing papers and then eventually came in and, and gave Bletchley Park some funding. Mm. And then Bletchley Park got the Heritage Lottery funding, 4.1 million, which was, that was the game changer and really the end of the campaign because once they'd got 4.1 million, we knew that they weren't going to close. So it's been described as new technology saving old technology, which I love. Yeah, um, me too. As a kind yeah. of as a kind of description of what you did, mm-hmm. um, which is to really use this incredible power of Twitter and of social media to to save something that you know, would have been lost, um, yeah. and that story would have been lost, wouldn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And so important for all of us to know about it, and I think particularly the relationship between women. Because I think weirdly after the war, kind of women went backwards a bit. So during the war, you know, they were doing all those amazing things, breaking code, you know, doing a lot of jobs that were, the men weren't doing because they were fighting. And then it kind of, yeah. things went, unfortunately, went back a few steps. Yeah, um, absolutely, one, for women, yeah. So one of the other initiatives that you're responsible for, I mean, you've done so much, Sue, it's really difficult for me to condense <laughs> it down into a podcast, is, yeah. um, is Tech Mums. Yeah, um, which is another kind of initiative about connecting women and technology. Can you tell us all a bit more about that? Sure. So I think possibly after the end of the Bletchley Park campaign, I knew that they were going to be okay. I was probably kind of looking around for like, what's my next campaign going to be, even though I wasn't actually like literally thinking that. But I think I, I you know, I like to 
do things, I guess, which uh, change, try and change the world to be the way that I want it to be rather than the way it is. And kind of then thinking back over my career, you know, then uh, so that was eight years ago, I think I started Tech Mum. So I, I had a successful career in tech. And uh, like technology and education have completely changed my life and my life chances, you know, bringing me and my children out of poverty and, you know, that created a career for me and, you know, better lives for my kids as well as for me. I kind of seen that impact then over um, some time and really wanted everyone to to kind of feel comfortable with technology and to see what opportunities are out there if you're confident with technology because there's just so many you know there's a whole world out there and if if you're not going to be using a computer you're not going to be accessing the internet you're not going to look at anything apart from the kind of offline world then there's another whole world out there and so much information and opportunity so I really wanted to do something about that and I started running coding and app design workshops for seven-year-old kids because also at the same time Michael Gove who was the education secretary at the time was saying that computing is too difficult for anyone under 14 and I just thought that's a load of what? rubbish. I oh know. God, I, ne- I, I know. never I never heard that at the time. I can't believe that. <laughs> under 14. Yeah. They're probably the best yeah. coders, aren't they? <laughs> oh, for goodness God. sake. Yeah, I just, I just thought it was ludicrous and he didn't know what he was talking about. Yeah. Um, so I think kind of partly to prove him wrong, I wanted to get a seven-year-old's coding because we didn't have any coding in schools at the time. And the whole kind of like coding revolution that's happened since then just hadn't happened. So, yeah, so he said that and I was like, oh, I, I need to prove that wrong. But also I want to see, can kids do it? You know, because no one was really doing that. So I ran coding and app design workshops with seven-year-old kids and they went really well, just so well. The kids absolutely loved it. And then we got the parents in at the end of the day. And so towards the end you know I was saying to the parents you know like why don't you have a go now your kids can show you what they've been doing because I just thought if the kids go home and the parents aren't interested or are negative about what they've been doing then you know they're not going to take it further whereas if we can get the parents on board then the kids go home to a supportive like tech friendly environment as well and I noticed when I said to parents you know like have a go now the the dads just kind of stepped in in general and the the mums some of them looked very apprehensive shall I say and so it just kind of like sparked a thought in my head. Maybe I, rather than kids, I should be working with mums because mums are the main kind of like influencers in society, I think. And I also saw some research shortly after that, which said that the main positive influencing factors on kids doing well at school in literacy and numeracy were their or are their mums' education and their home environment. So I just thought wow. to myself, so if we can get mums tech savvy, we not only kind of provide a great environment for kids to do well in tech, for kids to do well at school, but also we show mums what opportunities are out there to to work online, to go back into the workplace, to learn all different sorts of things, to be able to create apps, to create their own yeah. websites. So that's kind of where Tech Mums came from. So I put together a programme and we started running it at Bishop Challenger School in Tower Hamlets, I think in 2013, and had great success straight away, really. It was Ten, a 10 hour program so two hours a week for five weeks and then a graduation in the sixth week and stuff like how to use email how to do a google search uh, web design app design social media and a bit of coding in python at the end and we had great success right from the beginning really in terms of just really building mum's confidence with technology we had Brunel university do a, a study on our mums as they kind of went through the program and 
the the main difference in the mums at the end of the program was that their general self-esteem had absolutely rocketed so their their confidence with technology had gone up but also uh, but you know like the main uh, it had a knock-on effect yeah Yeah, absolutely built their own confidence and like chatting to the mums in the groups then I think if you if you think that tech's too difficult for you which is kind of a story that we're sold I think in society that tech's really difficult and you know particularly for women just like you know linking into the kind of stuff with women not being encouraged into sciences and STEM you know it, it all links together I think lots of women lots of mums just think it's too difficult for them whereas I just wanted to prove that it wasn't and so if you're one of those mums and you think something's too difficult and then you go through quite a short program really you come out the other end thinking oh actually you know I, I can use technology yeah. yeah no exactly yeah. you know and one of the points I tried to get across was like nobody knows everything about tech you know I've got yeah. a PhD in software engineering I don't know everything about tech you know, so the average person on the street is just not going to know everything about tech. So, yeah, we had great success straight away. And so Tech Mom has been running now for seven years and still going strong. We've got some free online courses up at the moment online. Um, if anyone's interested, Tech Mom's online. Part of our courses is up there free online for mums to have a go at at the moment. We put it up when we went into lockdown, really, because of COVID, because we really wanted more mums to be able to access our program whereas normally tech mums is taught face to face mainly in schools and libraries i could talk about tech mums forever <laughs> <laughs> so one thing i was going to ask you is yeah. you know, your your experience of tech has been universally positive but have are there any aspects of technology or the way tech's developing that you've got any concerns about are you you know and twitter you know i i just said yeah. that twitter was a lovely place to be in 2000 yeah i personally find it a less lovely place to be now i don't know if you've yeah. had that experience as well yeah it doesn't seem quite so much like a a fun party place which is how it no, seemed it really to me back was. in 2009 yeah a completely fun party place and yeah. finding people that you just couldn't have met and all that sort of thing so I don't, well, I don't know. I think it's good and bad. So now you can reach so many more people, right? Because so many more people are on Twitter. And, yeah. you know, I remember back then, I just used to hate it when people used to say, I, I don't care what you have for breakfast, if anyone mentioned oh, Twitter. No. <laughs> so many people said that. And I was like, that's not what it's for. Like, why, why are you all saying that? I don't know where that came from. I used to get so annoyed because I just thought, here, like we're running a major campaign to save our national heritage, yeah. Bletchley Park. And all you can talk about is, that's you know I don't want to know what you did had for breakfast anyway just reminded me of that but yeah it did seem like a kind of party place where you could just find amazing people that you never would have met and now you know we've got people like oh I won't mention his name yeah (laughs) the US president (laughs) yeah and you know so but the thing is it's a platform right so it's it's all down to human nature really you get good and bad I suppose um and it, it does depend a lot who you follow I think because you know, if you follow people that are saying positive things that you want to hear, then that's what you'll hear. If you're following people that are saying awful things, then then that's what you'll hear yeah. too. You know, I love the fact that through a hashtag like Me Too or Black Lives Matter, millions of people around the world can connect together and, and make positive change happen. But of course, then that mm. also means that people that want to do negative things can connect together too. So, you know, so again, that's not the platform, it's the people using it. So there is good and bad. I mean, what I'm at the moment setting up a a research centre at Durham University focused on bias in AI, because Ah. one of the things that I guess I'm interested in and does worry me is that if we've got 
an undiverse group of people creating most of our software products. Yeah. Um, is it gonna there's going to be there's going to be inherent bias yeah absolutely yeah. and it and the thing is that ai or those ai systems and products and services are going to be used by more and more people and are going to affect more and more lives and so you know it might be kind of like a small piece of code but it might affect millions or even billions of people around the world at some point you know because systems are, are kind of becoming more ubiquitous you know like as people get devices in their home which you know have ai software running in the background making decisions you just all sorts of systems which have ai as yeah. part of them are going to be making decisions and if that team of people that created it the people that tested it that you know if it wasn't tested on a diverse group of people in all sorts of ways then there there'll be lots of things that aren't picked up where there are flaws in the software and where it will make incorrect decisions so, yeah, I'm setting up a research group at Durham. I've got one PhD student at the moment looking for more, if anyone's interested, looking at, at bias in AI and what we can do. So we're going to be working with government and with industry. So it's kind of like academia, government, industry partnership, bringing in key people who with different kind of backgrounds and understanding of this area to work out, well, what can we do to try and ensure as much as possible that bias isn't put into our AI systems yeah. and, and products right from the beginning. You know, what can we do? And then the idea is to come up with some best practice for industry in terms of how to make sure as much as possible that their their products aren't biased. Fascinating. Sounds like it's going to be really, really fascinating research. There's been some really interesting stuff coming out of the States. I'm sure you're aware of it. People working on algorithmic bias there was some really worrying stuff about sentencing actually some alteration yeah, of sentencing that's right in yeah prisons that were showing a real bias against african-american yeah um, offenders so yeah really much needed so i could your career is so vast you've done so many things I said I could talk to you for much longer but I'm going to try and wrap up now I've got three questions that I ask everybody at the end yeah so so the podcast is about our tech habits our digital habits our phone habits so I'm just wondering if you had one message to give to everyone listening about their tech habits or about the way they use technology or about their relationship you know what would your message be well, um, I guess that for me, technology has massively changed my life for the better. It enabled me to connect with so many people and, you know, change things around me, change people, run campaigns. So I just see the opportunities out there with technology to be vast. So I guess I would say, you know, like anything that you're interested in, look at how to do that online and how to connect with other people to do that online because there's kind of strength in numbers and you can now reach people all around the world that you just couldn't before and collaborate with them to make the world a better place. I love that. And have you got a tip around how you get a balance between kind of online and offline? You know, <laughs> I, I remember yeah. when I was on Twitter 24 7 it seemed I mean I yeah. literally you know I used to spend a lot of time on Twitter and I've had to Me really too. Yeah. pull back from that I just wondered yeah. you know how do you make sure that you you have that balance between you know using it for good but actually spending yeah. some time not looking at a screen 
Yeah, I don't think I'm that good at that, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't now. So I used to work weekends as well when I was really trying to kind of get places and make stuff happen. So I don't work at weekends anymore. So that's good for me. But I still do look at my phone, you know, look at Facebook, LinkedIn. Well, not necessarily LinkedIn, but, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, yeah. just to kind of see what's happening, read the news. So yeah, I don't know if I'm the best person to ask. No, that, that's really. fine. I always ask everyone <laughs> to be very honest. Some people say I don't have a good balance. I just yeah. You know, no, I don't. I don't really. I but dive I have to right say, into it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got. I've now got like four kids and five grandchildren. So so that actually helps me because the grandkids come round at the weekend now. Now that we're kind of out of uh, lockdown, I hope I'm allowed to do that now. But anyway, I am. Uh, are, so the, grandkid, yeah. the grandkids come round at the weekend, and uh, the kids and we have a nice time. So that totally keeps me away from my phone. Um, So, so that's uh, good for me. And I have to say being a grandmother is just so wonderful. So wonderful. And the last question, what have you learned about yourself over the years from your relationship with technology? I think that I've got, I I got, or I had more potential than I ever realised. As a teenager, underneath it all, I sort of had some confidence, but not really that much. And, you know, I just had absolutely no idea that I'd be able to do what I've been able to do in my lifetime. You know, I just thought people that got degrees were amazing. And like one day, maybe I could get a degree. You know, that was kind of it was like pie in the sky kind of thing for me, particularly after leaving home at 16. You know, that was just such a major thing. You know, and so I if you said to me then that I did get a degree and then you know, maybe went on to do a PhD, I probably wouldn't have believed you, you know, so and I think technology has really enabled me because it's helped me to see what opportunities are out there and what other people are doing. And, you know, it's, it's connected me into so many people around the world, you know, through, particularly through social media, but also just through the internet. Um, before that, just so many people that have really enriched my life. And I forgot what the question was. <laughs> um, what have you learned about yourself? Yeah, I think that I had, I think that that I have so much potential. I've learned that kind of over the years and and really everyone does in in the online world. You know, it's just like the sky's the limit. That is a fantastic place to stop. Um, Thank you so much, Sue. I've really, really enjoyed it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of It's Complicated. If you haven't already, please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. It helps other people find us and it means you get a helpful little notification when a new episode becomes available. For more about getting a healthy balance with tech, you can follow me, Tanya Goodin, or Time to Log Off on Instagram and Twitter. And both my books, Off and Stop Staring at Screens, are available on Amazon and at all good bookshops. Finally, for more information about this and other episodes in the podcast series, visit itstimetologoff.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.